Hi, I'm Tony Cowan Brown. And I'm Benedict Kevins. And it's 2022, it's a new year, it's a new podcast season, and it's potentially time for new topics of how to think about tech and new ways of thinking about tech in 2022. Always more things to talk about. You actually wrote a piece about what you were thinking about 2022, and you kicked off with a statement that I thought was really interesting, which is sometimes the center of gravity is pretty obvious, and at other times there's so much going on. And it feels like potentially in this moment we're in the latter bucket mm. where there's a lot happening and there's a lot going on. Um, so I'm curious about like what are the things that we should be thinking that are top of mind for 2022 in, in the tech space? And that ties into another piece, which is what is actually even tech today, mm. um, which feels like a lot of the tech conversations are maybe potentially not tech conversations, which is a full line from last year. Uh, you, you're setting up like a three-hour podcast here, Tony. Um, yes, absolutely. This is the new format. <laughs> yeah. um, there's no end to this conversation. Yeah, we've got a band on later as well. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, so, we're reinventing the radio. Yeah. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Well, it was. It was a, so, I, so I suppose I started with a sort of a pretty obvious swearing comment, which is, you know, there's, there's some points in time in tech when like, you know what it is. It's web. It's the web. Yeah. Everything is the web. Everything is smartphones. Um, everything is social. Everything is, is Google. Um, there's two or three kind of fundamental locomotives that are driving everything. And, you know, there's other times when one of those has happened and we're thinking about well, what do we build on top of that and what happens afterwards. Mm. And, you know, clearly for the last you know, three, four years, right, smartphones happened. We get it. We understand it. It's done. Now what? And so, of course, if you're in crypto, then you don't wonder because, you know, the answer is crypto. And that's also the question and everything is crypto um, or maybe Web3. Um but for sort of everybody else, there's sort of there's sort of five, ten, fifteen different areas where this is a there's a fairly big consequential space, and a lot of there's a lot of sort of open questions where we don't quite know it's going to be how, how it's going to be resolved. And sometimes, like you know, what all the questions are, and we know we're not mm. going to get an answer anytime soon. Like kind of come back in five years and we'll find out. Other times, um, it's actually sort of open and evolving right now. Um, I think you know clearly you know, crypto or whatever we want to call it is in this sort of period of like um, a massively escalating complexity and sophistication as everybody builds like all sorts of stuff on top of that basic concept. Um, but we don't quite know where this will be in 10 years time. Is this going to have overturned Facebook and Google and Apple and everything that we do as consumers is based on this stuff, which is sort of what happened with the web as opposed to native software? Or is mm -hmm. it more like open source in that it's a sort of an essential part of plumbing, but not necessarily very visible to you as a user? It's interesting because is it also for a small group of people or is it going to actually happen in our day-to-day -day lives for all of the normal people using it on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, is it more like the web or is it more like open source? Um, and of course, you've also got to kind of strip aside all of the, the absurd amount of noise around it for people who say it's all a Ponzi scheme and people who say it's going to replace civilization. You kind of have to strip both of those apart and think, well, in five to, to 10 years, the spectrum. five to 10 years time, you might be able to build Facebook on this. And what would that mean? And how would that work? Um, the other extreme might be something like um, cars, say, where we don't really know what or when autonomy is going to look like and how long that's going to take. And it may be that we never get full autonomy and full autonomy is a bit like general AI in that, you know, this is a joke in AI that, you know, AI is anything that doesn't work yet because as soon as it works, people say that's not AI, that's just a database. That's just image oh, wow. recognition. That's just, that's just, you know, pattern recognition. That's not AI. And it may be that, you know, we have a car that can drive itself by the freeway, but, you know, you have to take over when you leave the freeway. And so people will say, well, that's not full self-driving. 
that's just driver that's just lane keeping that's just driver assist that's just automatic braking and we, we never get full autonomy so we don't know it's one of those things where like come back in five years and we'll find out we can all define what the questions are but no one knows and it's interesting also i always like the the, the topic of cars because we always kind of think that this space is going to free us from being dependent on having to drive a car and go mm. somewhere but is that really a tech problem or is that often like an infrastructure problem or how we actually set up our lives? Or yeah. How work? There's something interesting there of just like, is this a city infrastructure problem or is it a technology problem? And is it really going to free us from this dependency that we have on cars? Well, it's, it's kind of it's kind of fun that, you know, I lived in San Francisco for six years, which obviously doesn't have infrastructure <laughs> exactly. or has very little. And then, well, I mean, like, you know, the Silicon Valley has one train line with a stop yeah. every five miles. I mean, there's, you know, there's very, li- very limited infrastructure. It's an important one to remind people of the lack of infrastructure in San Francisco. This is not normal. Yeah. And, you know, they're, build, they're building a new bus lane on, what is it, Van Ness, and they spent 20 years on it and they haven't broken ground yet. Um, so so that's kind of one extreme. And then, you know, New, I've been in, you know, spent I'm now in London and, you know, New York, London has built like half a dozen big train stations mm. in the last 20 years or rebuilt. And, you know, Paris or, or, or Berlin even more so. And then New York is sort of somewhere in between where they've just built a train hall bolted onto the back of Penn Station and are tremendously proud of it. Um, and meanwhile, the sidewalk outside is full of potholes. So you've got all these different kind of different places where you can build infrastructure and have cars versus versus cars versus train versus city. And what do you want to do with that? All of which is to go off kind of spiraling off down a rabbit hole. Um, but the kind of the point is, is, you know, what is going to happen in China? What is happening in Chinese tech? What do we think about that? What's happening in um you know, what's going to happen in regulation of technology? Are we going to see one of these big companies broken up? Would that matter? Would it actually change anything? Are we going to have regulation that sort of fundamentally changes our day-to-day experience of how we use the internet? Or is it just going to be kind of a cost base that sort of sits alongside most of what we do? And, you know, we just get a lot more cookie banners, but nothing really changes in, in, in how stuff works. Um, is Apple going to announce AR headsets this summer? Or next summer? Or summer after? Or summer after that? Or never? You know, is VR going to grow from being, you know, today, maybe 5 million? I think Facebook's probably sold 12, 13 million of them. There's maybe 5 million people actually using them. Is that going to become a universal device with hundreds of millions of people using it? Or is it going to be sort of a subset of games consoles and there's like 10, 25, 50 million people using it? Um, does it merge with AR glasses? Do the optics for AR get solved or not? Like, again, come back in five years, we'll find out. Um, so there's these sort of lots of these places, you know, what do we think about privacy? What does privacy even mean? You know, we say we want privacy, like define it. Like Apple builds a, a CSAM scanner that they thought was private and everyone else thought it wasn't. So there's all these sort of these sort of places where like there are these big kind of building blocks or silos or trends yeah. or whatever in and around tech. And there are kind of big questions in them where you can kind of have an opinion as to what you think is going to happen. But we don't really know where we're going to end up. Um, I mean, it's a little bit like, I was going to say, if you like, you go back to like 2010, um, is it going to be apps or the web? Is Android going to crush Apple or not? And we know the answers to those today. But, you know, in 2010, you could have described the question and said, well, look, come back in five years and we'll find out. Today, there's like 15 different places where like, you can define the questions, but, you know, come back in five or 10 years and we'll, and we'll see what happened. It's also interesting when you bring up like the big questions around regulations, whether that's privacy or other topics, it feels to me like we've had these same conversations for five years, but I need to remind myself that the conversation has Mm. actually evolved in the past five years. 
it's the same topic, but we've been approaching it in different ways. And we've been trying to ask different questions to obviously get to the answers that we're looking for. But I find I do find it interesting that I was mm. looking back in old emails of I was asking the same questions about piracy and censorship four or five years ago. And it feels like we're still going to be having these questions for four or five years in the in the in the future. Well, I think it's just it's not an easy it's not an easy topic with no easy answers. It isn't. Well, I think yeah, I mean, I think that the only the thing I've written specifically around privacy, I said that we all have this idea that privacy is really important now, and we don't want to be tracked. And at a sort of a very basic level, what sort of the internet on one side and sort of machine learning on the other side means is that there's the sort of stuff that was sort of always theoretically possible at a small scale that's become very easy at a large scale. I mean, the the, the analogy I think I used once was like theoretically. I could go into all of the government's records and go through all of your bank records and go through you know, your property records and your rental transactions and work out an awful lot of stuff about who you are and where you live and how much money you've got. But I couldn't do that for hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people. Whereas now, in principle, you kind of can. At scale and faster. Yeah, yeah we're living in this sort of vast panopticon. But then we also did, and so then we have these phrases like privacy or digital surveillance or surveillance capitalism. But then you say, okay, so I'm running a music class for toddlers and I want to show an ad to mums in Cardiff. And here, and I go on Facebook and I pay a hundred pounds and I show an ad yeah. and I show an ad to mums in Cardiff. What exactly is the profound social harm that's just happened? When I showed an ad to mum, people that Facebook thinks are mums in Cardiff, like what? What exact? And and it sounds like a kind of a bullshit question, but if you actually want to write laws about this, you kind of need to answer the question: What is it that we're trying to achieve and change? Avoid. And as soon as, yeah. and yeah, and as soon as you start saying, okay, privacy is great, but what is it that you want to happen here? Um, what specifically do we want to ban targeted advertising? Okay, that sounds like a good idea. It's until you remember that all advertising Everything. is targeted. Or you want to ban advertising based on the user profile rather than on the context. Okay, well, that's probably good for Google and terrible for the New York Times and The Guardian might go out of business. And what is the social harm exactly in saying I'm going to show you a nappy ad because you looked at a story about babies last week as opposed to showing it to you because you're on a page that talks about babies? Like, we don't know what we think about this stuff. And so, you know, that's kind of an interesting sort of problem space. What I've come to realise also is where people, I think where when you say to people like this has been happening for a long time, but we used to do it at smaller scale, we also do it used to do it from a very human level, that often when you do it at scale like this, there is more room for more harm and more mistakes being done. And then you get into the conversation of, well, if you set up something smartly and if you're getting the right technology to do it, is it actually mm. smarter than a human being? Because human beings makes mistake, make mistakes as well when they do things on a one per one basis. Um, yeah. But I, what I find is every time I bring it up, whether it was in tech, whether it was in tech or actually even in politics, we've been doing targeting since the dawn of day when it comes to polit- politics and getting people to vote yeah. for you. Like it's a very specific specific methodology. But what scares people now is the scale at which it can be done and how fast it can be done. My, my favourite political targeting story is, I think, Nancy Astor, who was the first female MP in the UK, was campaigning in Portsmouth with maybe her brother-in-law or something who was a, a naval officer. 
Um, and so this is sort of 1920, and so she goes to this house and knocks on the door, and the little girl comes to the door and says, uh, Mother's not home, but she says if a lady comes with a sailor, it's 10 shillings for a room for an hour. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, there you are. So, you know, what's, what's old is new. <laughs> how, sometimes I need to understand how you store, remember, and pick up on all of these anecdotes. That, that is kind of a famous story, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to yes. put that on. Mm. I'm way too young to remember that, Benedict. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. So we've got all of these topics. There's something else that you brought up in, the, and that we've, I think, briefly spoken about and that has been mentioned time and time again, which is this idea that there potentially may be new gatekeepers when we open up a new wave of technology. And with, there's mm. always been gatekeepers in tech. How are you thinking about, and I'm putting it in inverted commas, like new gatekeepers in this space? And is that even something that we should be thinking about? So I think there's, there's two very different places that one could take that conversation. Because yeah. one conversation is to go very specifically and look at, you know, Apple taking 25% off the top of Facebook. It's actually Apple and TikTok between them. Or at any rate, Facebook said they missed their numbers and the stock went down 25%. And Facebook said it's because of A, Apple and B, TikTok and C, we're old and boring, except they didn't say that part. And, you know, Apple, despite not really having a significant ad business, has sort of somehow become a very significant power player in the ad business. Um, Amazon announced this quarter what had previously been sort of implicit in their results. So they, they have this line in the back of the account, it's called a, a breakdown of their revenue, and they have this line called Other, which they say is predominantly advertising. And this quarter, they basically broke out advertising specifically, and it was all advertising. And so Amazon did a $31 billion of ad revenue in 2021, mm. which is bigger than bigger than YouTube and bigger than the global um, newspaper industry's advertising revenue. Um, and so here from nothing five years ago, here's this $31 billion ad business. Then you have Shopify, whose numbers, Q4 numbers aren't out yet. But in the 12 months to Q3, they did $165 billion of GMV, which is about 40, 45% of the size of Amazon marketplace. So you kind of continue have these sort of tectonic plates shifting around for all that, you know, there's a certain kind of person that wants to say, you've got these giant monopolies and everything's now fixed. You know, there's sort of, there's a lot of stuff still moving. Um, there's a lot of levers still moving around that. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll they'll continue to be more. Um, I think Sheehan is fascinating here. And, you know, so it's not a tech company in, in that sense. But you know, this is a company that nobody had heard of two or three years ago yeah. that, you know, is probably bigger than Zara and H&M combined in the USA now. Um, so, you know, change is kind of permanent. Um, the other place that one could take this kind of conversation, you know, is kind of back to the point of, um, you know, what are the old, you know, the sort of the thing we sort of started with, um, which is one of my framings for kind of talking about where we are now is that sort of the first 50 years of tech was well the other way around the first 50 years of cars was what's a car and what's a car company and who has one and that gets you to sort of 1950 and then it's okay we know that now the next question is well what happens when everyone has a car yes and a sort of similar point in tech now the last 50 or 60 years of tech is what's a computer what's a software company what's software who has a computer now five billion people have a smartphone there's only bit under 6 billion adults on earth, so like, we're done. We know what a computer is. It's a smartphone. Everyone's got one. Everyone has a computer. Everybody, literally everybody has a computer. And so the next 50 years is, well, what happens now that everybody has a computer? Um, and so that gets you Netflix and Shein and insurance and Uber and Airbnb. And in the same way that like the second 50 years of the car industry wasn't about cars, it was about Walmart and McDonald's and suburbia and freeways and, you know, the fact that everyone had a car. Um, now, sort of things that spiral out of that 
One of them is that, you know, in 1910, there were hundreds of car companies. And in 1950, in America, there were like three. Um, certainly by 1960, there were three car companies. It's basically, you know, um, GM and Ford and Chrysler a long way behind. And there's a few others, like, you know, the Checker Cab Company and things. But, but basically, it's GM and Ford. And so there's a narrative that says, well, this is sort of where we are in tech now. It's Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and they are the GM and Ford of our day. And GM and Ford dominated the car industry for a generation until the Japanese came along and fucked them. But people tend not to mention that part. Um, can we say fucked on this podcast? I don't know. You can, Benedict, we're way past out. We take it out. You can, you'll take it out in post, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's this sort of narrative that says, um, we've already done the sailor joke. So there's this narrative that says, like, Google and Apple are GM and Ford, and that's it That's it for 30 or 40 years. Um, mm. I, think, I think the problem with that, I mean, it's kind of the, the point that, you know, all, all, all theory, all models are useful, but they're all wrong. Or all analogies are useful, but they're wrong. The problem with this is, like, are we really defining the market that narrowly? Because, well, where do, um, where does, like, Siemens and General Electric and Lockheed Martin and Boeing fit into that narrative? Because those feel like those were pretty big companies, too, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And so and still today, somewhat to a certain degree. Yeah, still today. Still, actually, those are companies are probably well apart from GM, but like those so Lockheed Martin is bigger than Siemens, a bit a lot bigger than Boeing than, than General Motors now. So the, my my point is, do you define this? Do you do you take this analogy narrowly and you say there's a car industry? But you can also take the industry much more broadly and say, well, you know, what about what, maybe we should just say mechanical engineering? And because if you're drawing your your model of what are the tech giants. Um, there's an awful lot of fifty billion dollar tech companies out there, you know, and if you're and that doesn't fit in your analogy of GM and Ford, there's an awful lot of fifty hundred, two hundred billion dollar tech companies out there. Um, you know, how does that model account for everything from Coinbase to Stripe yeah. to Shopify to Spotify to um, you know Okta to um, Databricks to UiPath to you know there's dozens and dozens and dozens of seriously big tech companies out there now, many of whom don't see Amazon or Google as a, as a meaningful yeah. competitive threat, or only one of them and not the others. Um, and so that car analogy seems sort of interesting in one way, in that you're talking about deployment. That you know now we've worked out we have this sort of mass industrialized economy. Okay, so then what happens? But on another sense, you know, there's yes, there are three car companies, but no, there are hundreds of tech companies. That's the point for me. Maybe is it, is it because there are so many tech companies out there today that we can't keep track that we're so focused on these potential four, five, six gatekeepers because it's easier to keep mm. track of them because every day there's a new tech mm. company, especially when you're sat in Silicon Valley. It is hard to forget that every single day there is a new startup and a new tech company that emerges in a space that may or may not be relevant to you, but it's there. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an interesting um, sort of piece across a bunch of other axes because, I mean, there was a study from the FTC last year on how many acquisitions mm. Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft had made. And it was sort of four or five hundred US companies in say like 2010 yeah. to 2000, 2009 to 2019 sort of that kind of period um so sort of you know sort of, sort of 40 or 50 acquisitions a year and 
it sounds like a big number. And then you say, number one, most of them are five and 10 person companies. You know, look at the data. Actually, the data was they're all tiny companies. It's a very small number of them that were big companies. The amount of people that I've heard here in San Francisco to say, oh, I got acquired by Google. Oh, I got acquired by Amazon. Mm. You start to realize, oh, okay, there's a lot of people being acquired. Well, I kind of comment the other way, which is, you know, yes, so there was 400 US companies in a decade by those five companies, which is actually not that many in the scheme of things. More importantly, there's 400 companies in 10 years. There's three or 4,000 companies founded in Silicon Valley every year. So you're actually looking at tens of thousands of companies. And there's a sort of a narrow point. There's a narrow point here about, you know, what's the Google, Facebook, Apple acquisition as a percentage of the overall market. I think the broader point is um, just how much tech is being created now. Um I mean, one of the charts in the big presentation that I did in December, I did sort of two charts, one from Okta, one from Productive. And what they both are is basically how many companies, how much SaaS software is there inside a typical company now? How many apps are there inside a typical engineering company, finance company, tech company, media company? And the answer is hundreds. Like even each team has 50 to 100 and and isn't it a perfect example for example that like clubhouse was built purely on other technology yeah. and other pieces that already existed and actually they've built a company out of yeah it's all built it's all built on third party platforms which of course is why yeah. you know one of the reasons there are so many more companies now is you can get from you can get from That's zero it. to one for very little money getting to getting from one to a billion users is a whole other it's a whole other thing and that requires an enormous can require an enormous amount of money but yeah i mean it's it's kind of a cliche now that you know instagram was i think seven people or ten people when it was acquired and it had hundred tens i'm making these numbers up now but you know instagram was a billion dollar acquisition it had certainly tens of millions of users it had a single digit number of people and that's because it was all built on you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. It was built on all these other tools that people have been created before. Um, but the, the kind of the point that I was getting at more was like, you know, just the, the volume of software that is being created now, the amount of tools that are being created, yeah. which is sort of my, you know, my point. Like, you probably not very useful to define the market as narrowly as saying GM and Ford. More useful to define the market as like all mechanical engineering, all manufa- all, all mechanical, all, all industrial manufacturing companies, you know, GM, mm. Yes, GM and Ford then were twenty percent of the S and P, but there's an awful lot of other companies out there, um, and most of them don't care. Most of them doing something completely different that Google is never going to do. Um, I mean, so if you, I was looking at a company the other day that does um, it's a SaaS company that does instrument instrumentation for the interview process. It's like absolutely, what's the chance of Google Amazon doing? It's absolutely zero chance of Google and Amazon doing that. Or even Microsoft, zero chance of Microsoft doing that. It's too narrow, too specific. And that could be a billion dollar company, could be a $10 billion company, it might fail miserably. You know, we'll find out in five years time. Um, but the sheer number of those kind of applications, and it's partly, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. The other side of it is the shift to SaaS, which gets this, um, which means that, you know, instead of it being a data center and you want to deploy this business, this, this product, on your data center so you've got to get the IT group to put it on their roadmap and it might happen in a year or two and then they've got to deploy a physical application even to your desktop PC that's how it would have worked in 1995 um, 
No, now it's a web, it's a URL and a login and, a, and maybe an Okta integration if you're lucky and an expensed corporate Amex card. And so that gets you 50, 100, 200 applications inside every big company. And that gets you that kind of tidal wave of, of, of software, um, which is, as, as I've written about this, like this is what digital transformation means. I mean, um, here's all this other stuff happening that isn't rocket ships or cars or quantum or crypto. <laughs> like There's this whole bunch of just bread and butter, you know, thousands of companies. It's always fascinating to me how few people write about it. And I get it. It's not as sexy or as exciting, but it's 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 what it, it truly is the mm. backbone and the infrastructure yeah. that most of it is built on. I'm I, So there's obviously, I think many people have said it, but, you know, over the years, every company has basically is, essentially become a tech company. Right now, it feels also that most companies today are media companies with the amount of content they're putting out there and creating. And we think of the likes of even TikTok, but, you know, the likes of Netflix. Is that a good way of thinking about it, that we've moved away from every company being a tech company and now potentially every company being a media company in one way, shape or form? Was that a naive or basic way of looking at well, it? Well, so I have a pretty strong opinion yeah. that Netflix is a, is a media company. And the reason I say this is that all the questions that actually matter are TV questions, like how many shows, what kind of what shows, content. what price, what mix, how long do they last, how often do they have to be replaced, you know, what happens, you know, what happens as content moves off, how big will Disney's business be? Yeah. Like, these are not technology questions. These are all, this is all media questions. These are all media questions. Um, similar sort of point in the music business. You know, what should the distribution, you know, the hot topic now is how should the money from streaming be distributed amongst artists? You know, should it, you know, why do the record companies get as much as they do? You know, if one person watches, um, listens to a K-pop band a thousand times and somebody else has the same subscription but listens to, you know, a small indie band once, is it fair that the K-pop band gets a thousand, gets recorded as having a thousand plays and the small indie band gets recorded as having one play and that's how the money gets divided? Or should it be the other way around? Or what? Or how should that work? I don't know. These are all music industry questions. It's not a technology question. Um, and I think the same point with Sheehan. I mean, Sheehan is sort of interesting in that, you know, they are using smartphone first native smartphone native experience there's a lot of content in there there's also sort of theoretically a lot of predictive ordering they look at what you browse before you've even bought it in order to sort of say well what stuff's getting all the interest so we'll use that to pre to book our order straight away is that tech or is that like saying that you know at a certain point i mean it's kind of the parody you know your web your tech company or your restaurant with a website you know at a certain point you know is walmart a car company you know You've got to have the car. You've got to presume car ownership. You've got to understand that people have a car, and so that the amount that they'll order will be different. And you have to think about the parking lot, and you have to think, hey, we're in Texas, like you shouldn't have a parking lot a, a miles walk away from the store. Like, but that doesn't mean you're Detroit. It doesn't mean you're a car company. It's just retailing. And there's a sort of a certain point as we transition to you know digital native experiences that those digital native experiences are retailing and marketing, mm. not technology necessarily and you can get very kind of hung up on you know arguing about the detail of the definition but you know there is a sort of a point here clearly that this is no longer that this is that these are kind of fundamentally about good retailing um not being about technology can't help but remember like maybe 10 years ago 
even in the agency world, people thinking or talking about how we're not just an agency, we're an agency with technology. Let's start thinking of ourselves as a tech company. And like that was the thing to be. People wanted to be a tech mm. company, to be taken seriously, to make money. And now it feels like the whole conversation has shifted of we need to be producing content. We need to be telling stories. We need to bring people in. And you're just like, but you're a VC firm. Yeah, yeah, but it's all about the content and the narratives. And because people consume more content because more people mm. are online and more people spend time consuming content. So there's, a, there's just an interest that the conversations have, I'm having seem to have shifted from people wanting to be a tech company, even if they're not. And now people wanting to be a media company or being a production company because people are cons consuming more and more content. And I don't know, if, mm. and I don't know what's happening. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I'm missing something. Um, but the conversations I keep having seem to be about that. I think I think there's a sort of an unbundling okay. story here, which is that the, well, at a very high level, it used to be you had this very straightforward mm -hmm. flow in that if you're Procter & Gamble, say, you've probably got your own factories. Certainly you have partner factories that are under contract. You've got a big factory that makes yeah. stuff for Procter & Gamble. And then you have a big ad budget and you you pay an ad agency to make you lots of ads and then you pay TV stations to run those ads. And then you ship trucks full of your product to Walmart. And maybe Walmart does some ads too. And you pay Walmart a 50, Walmart takes a 50% margin or whatever the margin is and sells the product to the consumer. And every part of that flow is now broken apart um, because the manufacturing is doesn't certainly doesn't have to be owned by the brand and very often it may be very small order quality quantities and you know being done in a much more kind of decentralized just-in-time way and then you may be um you may be owned by a celebrity or partner with a celebrity and if you're a celebrity it used to be that you know the way you you built your brand was by a obviously like movies and your actual job yeah actually doing what, what it was that you did yeah um if if there were if there actually was one which is a separate point um, you know, if you're a musician, you you made the music. If you're a movie star, you make the movie. Um, and then you need to be in a magazine or a newspaper or a TV show. Whereas with Instagram and tick, then TikTok and YouTube, you go direct. And so you have this whole wave of people who've un where the celebrity has unbundled the media. Equally, if you're a media, if you're, you know, if you're making or doing a new makeup brand, you don't own the plant, certainly don't own the plant. You don't, you order it on a short batch. You don't do a national TV ad. Um, you have your own content, your own story. You speak maybe to very specifically to a very particular kind of consumer rather than just speaking to all women aged 18 to 34. Um, you may be selling to a much smaller, narrower demographic. You see this particularly, you know, sort of sort of selling, you know, kind of personal care products to black people who are traditionally underserved in the US market, all sorts of people thinking about that. Um, so every step of that value chain kind of gets broken apart. And then you kind of look at this and you think, OK, so does that mean you're a tech company? Well, no. But you're a, you're, you only oh, exist because of tech. That's a good way of looking at it. And each of those steps along that sequence. Yeah. But just yeah. as Walmart only yeah. exists because everyone had a car, you know, you couldn't build Walmart in 1920. Like, that wouldn't make any sense because there were no trucks and no freeways and none of that manufacturing. And, you know, nobody had a car. You know, 1960s, you can build Walmart, which is when Walmart starts, really explodes in the 80s. Um, but it presumes car ownership. 
I mean, it'll confuse, it also, there's other stuff it presumes computers, because Walmart uses computers to do inventory management much more efficiently. But basically, Walmart presumes everyone has a, presumes interstate highways, presumes trucks, presumes cars, but it's not a car company um, in order any kind of useful sense. And the same thing now, all of these new sort of piranha brands are, um, this is a great phrase, is um, are, are online first. Um, or something like half to two thirds of all the growth in CPG in the last ten years has come from small brands, new brands, and it's 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 just the, the possibility to create a new brand because of all of this sort of unbundling. You know, you don't need to do a massive order, do a massive TV buy, do a massive inventory ship to Sephora, and Walmart, and Walgreens, or whatever your channel is. Have three hundred stores of your own, or build a store profile up yourself. You know, Shein is a bit maybe the biggest fast fashion brand in the USA without having a store. And so, none of what we've but none of that is tech per se. I mean, there's always this sort of degree to it. You know, there's this sort of narrow point. It's like, you know, the, the thing people, the, this example that people would always give is you've got this retailer who knows everything about the physical store, but they don't know what shopping cart abandonment rate is. Does that mean, is that a, but is that a tech thing? Or is that like saying, you know, you built, you know, here you are, you were a department store, now all of your outlets are in malls. Do you understand how car parks work? It's the story that always fascinated me with people interested in F1 of always trying to understand why Red Bull was in F1. Because if you're Mercedes, it makes sense. If you're Ferrari, it makes sense. If you're McLaren, it makes sense. You're trying, this is an advertising opportunity to Mm. sell your supercars on the road. And the fascinating, obviously, story with Red Bull is they don't even own the production company. They don't even own the production that makes the facility that makes the cans. They are purely a content-based marketing opportunity. And they pour all of their marketing budget into Formula One to run these cars to basically send more cans of this soft it is just a fascinating world when you think of it of like yeah. what are you yeah i mean this was a joke about andreessen horowitz said it was in this is ben, uh, people some people people attribute this to me this is mark andreessen's joke that andreessen horowitz is a media company that monetizes through venture capital yeah. um now of course it's just a it's a it's a twitter meme posting company that, that monetizes <laughs> through venture capital um, pivoted um, yeah they, they 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 unbundled the content and they sort of poured into um you know, there's a joke here, which is old, A16Z starts future, an online publishing brand, new. And Mark Andreessen is posting GIFs. Like, which of these is getting more attention? <laughs> but I like this. I like this sort of like, okay, so if everything is possible because of the tech, that doesn't automatically mean that they are a tech company. Yeah. Um, mm. And so how do we think about all of the new companies that are coming onto the onto the market? It's exciting. Um, but it's a different, it looks like it's a different way of thinking about what is technology and what isn't. Anything to add? There's a, you know, as 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 an as an analyst, one of my puzzles is on the one hand thinking about what the next questions are and which questions to leave behind. You know, I'm sort of thinking about leaving regulation behind because, like, increasingly, I feel like not regulation, um, Benedict. Well, increasingly, I feel like you know it doesn't actually matter to no most one cares. In tech. Uh, a, no one cares, and B, it doesn't matter very much to people in tech. Most people building it, ed- but most people building enterprise software companies, they're not affected by any of this stuff. Um, the 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 other side though is um, like how many different things one needs to try and be an expert in, or just be conscious of you're not going to know anything about. Yes. Um, and the China thing is the obvious one. Like there's um yeah Lillian Lee. Lillian, yeah. So so Lillian said you're you know your China analyst. China isn't inscrutable. It's just your China analyst doesn't read Chinese. Yeah, um, which I don't like. Which was exactly the point of the podcast where we, we were talking. Exactly about. why we needed her on. Yeah, I yeah. don't know anything about China. You know, I read what everyone else reads. I don't know. I know very little about luxury goods. I know a little bit about the art market. I don't know much about cars. 
Um, which of those, what, but where, where are the points of leverage in there to actually understand? Because, I mean, obviously the joke about cars is that, you know, software people don't know enough about cars and car people don't know about, enough enough about, about software. software. So there's this interesting pivot point in the middle there. Um, but the, the challenge now is there's so many spaces where software has become a question. And so you kind of have to work out like, is software, is technology the key point of leverage here? Is that the thing that's going to change this space? Um, or is it in the end going to be, you know, something else? Yes. Um, I mean, I, a few years ago, I met the chief exec of a water company, giant water company, um, like utility, water utility. Yeah. And we had the whole, the, you know, did the whole like A16Z in a presentation thing and explained how the world worked in technology and what Silicon Valley was. And he, he says, you know, I really think like, you know, the next couple of years, innovation might be one of our top five priorities. Uh-huh. And that sounds insane until you remember that it's a water company. It's infrastructure. It's Maybe, like, that's an entirely reasonable decision to say innovation might be number six in our list of priorities, like climate change, drought, you know, we've got yeah. lead in the pipes, regulation, pricing, we've got to invest in X and Y. Yeah, maybe innovation is on the top five. In a world that is becoming increasingly less specialised in that technology might be the backbone, but there's so many other things coming into it and so many other questions that we need to have. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've actually enjoyed so much working with a lot of the Formula One teams in Formula mm. One. I'm just coming in going, I know nothing about cars, I know, but I'm fascinated about how you're incorporating technology and how technology is going to shift that. And it's just fun having these conversations, but also going in absolutely knowing, I know nothing about this space, but maybe there's an overlap as we start having conversations. That becomes well, really well. Dumb, qu- dumb questions are kind of useful sometimes. I mean, there's you know one extreme. There's, but they always are. Well, but because you know asking the dumb question can kind of produce the interesting answer. Um, I mean, one extreme. There's a story of Guy Guy Hands at, at, at Terra Firma when they bought EMI. Is it EMI? Yeah, he bought EMI, and he says, "So the artists who don't recoup their advances, when do they pay it back?" Oh. <laughs> which is sort of a very dumb question but also kind of a meaningful yeah. one because that gets to the kind of the core of um okay how does this business actually work Absolutely. where does the, where does the money go he also said so why are we spending a half a million quid a, a month on fruit and flowers and the answer is it's not fruit and flowers <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of Someone was asking me um so just out of curiosity how do f1 drivers not lose the car key and I was just sat there, what do you mean? Well, when they get in the car and they start the car, like, where do they put the key? Again, dumb question. Like, and I was just like, wait, but I know, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this is F1 cars do not have a car key, but wait, do they? And obviously they don't. It takes 10 people to start a Formula One car. Um, but it was, it's a very similar in that space of like, it gets you thinking about, yeah, well, for a normal person who doesn't know about Formula One, the big question is, where do they put the car key once they get in the car yeah. and they start driving 300 kilometers an hour? I know. You ask the dumb <laughs> question and then people actually have to sort of sit and think about, okay, wait a minute. So how does this work exactly? And why did and why and why did we do it that way? And it got people thinking about, oh, this explains why there's 20 people around the Formula One car at any time, because if it stops, it needs half of those people to kick it back off again. So maybe 2022 is the year of dumb questions that aren't actually that dumb. Well, no, I'm afraid every year is dumb questions. Like what's Amazon's market share? How why is Amazon allowed to sell private label goods? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that feels like a good a good place um, to end this sure. episode. Well, it's a it's a good place to start a new season. It is indeed, nicely put.